0: Take your Bibles and turn to Philippians chapter 3, Philippians chapter 3, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 11, and we will look at this morning verses 1 through 8. I have uh, lots of friends in Ukraine. Every week I spend part of my week tracking them, finding out where they are and what they're doing, how they're doing. Most of them are out of Ukraine. Some are still in Ukraine. But there is one couple in particular that I am particularly close to because I have worked so closely with them for about 14 years. And you know them because uh, they have been here. He's preached in this pulpit. Uh, Many of you got to know them, love them, and care for them. Tonight, at the beginning of our worship time, I'm going to give a report, a brief report to the church on them, where they are, what's going on with them, so that you can have an update. There are reasons that I just simply cannot do that here in this context. So come tonight if you're interested in that, and it won't be the whole service because we're going through a series called Doctrines for Living. And tonight, we're going to wrap up our study of the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. So we would invite you to come and be with us, and uh, we will begin with that report tonight. Now, if you're able to stand to honor God in the reading of His holy, inerrant, infallible, and fully sufficient word, Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Finally, my brothers... Rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh, for we are the circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for His sake. I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Moses Silva, who's written an incredible commentary on Philippians, writes about chapter 3 of Philippians with these words, and I quote, Chapter 3 of Philippians is without dispute a singularly powerful passage. It is a foundational building block for theology, and it is a true classic of Christian spirituality, end quote. It is so important because all of chapter 3 is about a real, genuine true relationship with God. Now, if Paul is going to write about a real, genuine, true relationship with God, that means that he recognizes that in the church in Philippi, there are those who profess to have a relationship with God, but they have calculated that relationship on false premises. They say they know God, but they do not. They say that they are following Jesus, but they do not know what that means. They have a bogus and bankrupt relationship with God. So Paul in this passage is going to show us, and he's going to speak in such a way that It is almost impossible to miss what a real relationship with God really is. Do you want a real relationship with God? Uh, Do you want the kind of relationship with God about which the Bible speaks and speaks plainly? Or are you satisfied just to listen to what our culture communicates religiously about a a relationship with God that will get you saved and get you into heaven. It's promised, but it may not at all because it cannot at all produce what is promised. Paul wants us to enjoy a real relationship with God. What does that look like? Well, let me just tick off five things here. Uh, to begin this morning, that are a part of any real relationship with God. Number one, a real relationship with God really changes us. We are changed people. And God does His work by the power of His Holy Spirit to initiate that change. Secondly, this real change that God brings is an increasing change. We don't get saved by the grace of God and stay the same. That's not possible. When we're saved by the grace of God, we are ever more being changed into the likeness of Jesus. It's a real change. It is a radical change. It is an ongoing change. Number three, what we believe changes. We may change during the course of our growth as a Christian as we get into the Word of God and listen to the Word of God. What we believe grows and changes as we mature, but there's some fundamental foundational beliefs that do not change. Number four, when we have a real relationship with God, our desires change. We want to be with God as much as possible. We want to enjoy the presence of god as much as possible we want to be with the people of god as much as possible Uh, we enjoy engaging in the worship of god and we enjoy engaging in the study of the word of god number five our priorities change our life is turned upside down so that what we used to have as priorities is flipped so that now we have new and different priorities that are defined by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God so that we hunger and thirst for the things of God. You can have someone who says, I have a relationship with God But but these things are not present in me. I would say to you as lovingly as I can say to you, you don't have a relationship with God where you're experiencing His grace and mercy. You have a relationship with God and you're under His judgment. And God has brought you here today to bring you from His judgment into His mercy and radically transform your life and give you a real relationship with God. Paul begins with a word of introduction. Finally, it doesn't mean that he is ending things. It means what remains for me to say to you is what I'm about to say to you. I'm going to address that which needs to be addressed, and I'm going to address it to the church in Philippi. And he gives them a word of wonder. And then he brings them a word of warning. Here's the word of, here's the word of wonder. Rejoice in the Lord. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Now, we've been together for a season in the study of Philippians and we've heard this word joy or rejoice often and we will hear it more because it's the key to the letter. But we've never heard this phrase. This is the first time it's found in the letter. Rejoice in the Lord. Do you recognize that apart from a real relationship with God through Jesus, you don't have any joy? That's why unbelievers are pursuing things other than joy and calling them joy. The Bible says that in the last days, people will be lovers of themselves, people will be lovers of money, and people will be lovers of pleasure. Those three things define the substance of what every unbeliever is chasing because they have no joy. They're after what they want, and they define for themselves what they want, and in order to get what they want, they have to have money, so there's the love of money, in order to chase what they want, and what they want is defined by pleasure. I just want to feel good and be happy, and I'm going to go after these things because I'm seeking the money to support them. Because there's no joy. Real joy comes only from Jesus. God has made you that way. So that the only place you will ever find joy is in and through The surrender and submission of your life to Jesus as Lord. He's the source of all joy. He is the fountain flowing into your life like fresh water from a stream that flows into you and over you and through you and around you and brings you joy. He's the substance of all joy. He's the definition of all joy. He's the essence of all joy. Jesus himself entering our lives based upon what he did on the cross for us, infusing our lives with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. He's the satisfaction for which we are seeking. Oh my, if I could just find a place of peace. If I could just find that place where I'm finally content. Any of you looking for that? Are you defining your life by your circumstances? Some of you are in tough places. Some of you are in situations you never would have chosen to be in. You're facing circumstances in your life that are hard. How can I have joy in the midst of them, Jesus? Because Jesus alone can bring you peace in the midst of your pain. And He can bring you satisfaction in the midst of your sorrow. Jesus alone rejoice in the Lord. Now, to write these things to you, Paul says, is the word itself is burdensome. It's no burden to me. It's translated here, trouble. But it's safe for you. It's not that Paul is happy to write these words that he's about to speak. It's that it's necessary because he wants to protect them by the Word of God from what is troubling them and causing an unsafe situation. By the way, the word safe here was used in the ancient world to warn shepherds from the encroachment of wolves. Paul is saying to the church in Philippi, you need to know there are wolves in your midst. There are people who have a bogus bankrupt view of a relationship with God, and they are spewing that bogus view everywhere, and it's creating problems. The wolves are on the move. And it's my goal, Paul says, to warn you. It's my goal to protect you. It's my goal to keep you safe in the truest sense of that word. So, this is what Paul does he does three things. The first thing he does is he confronts the issue with a word of warning. The second thing he does, which is the heart of what he does, is he paints a contrast between a real relationship with God and a bogus relationship with God. And then at the end, where we will get next week, or the next time that I'm here to preach, Paul speaks with clarity about where a real relationship with God always leads. So Paul confronts them. He speaks a word of warning in verse 2. He uses three images to communicate one truth. He wants to keep them safe. There are wolves in their midst. He wants them to know that. So look at the images in verse 2. Look out for the dogs... Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He speaks with force. He's not offering suggestions here. These are not recommendations for them to consider. Watch out! He repeats it three times. He wants them to know what they are facing. They're facing dogs. Now, in our culture, we would say that's nice. Not in Paul's culture. Because dogs were not pets. They were pests. People steered away from dogs. Dogs were the kind of animals that didn't come out much in the day. They operate under the cover of darkness. You would see them at night in the back alleys. They were looking for those places where people had dumped their trash. They would forage through the trash to find food to eat during the night. They were very slippery. They were very seductive. They were very secretive. Watch out, Paul says... For the dogs, because they're in the church, they're very slippery, they're very seductive, they're very secretive. They're evil workmen. That's the second image. Watch out for the evil workmen. They work, they work hard. They work hard because they have an agenda that they want to be in place and they want their agenda in place. Uh, They're working hard from their view to build up the church, but in what they're doing because of their lack of a real life changing relationship with, with God, they're not building up the church, they're breaking down the church. They're evil. They're evil workers, they are those that mutilate the flesh. Now, I put this in the outline, so maybe in seeing it in the outline, you could see what Paul is doing here, because Paul is contrasting these people with the symbol of circumcision. So he calls them one word. This phrase, mutilate the flesh, is the translation of one word in the Greek language, and that one word is katatome. Katatome, the word for circumcision, is peritome. Now, peritome, a circumcision, is a very delicate surgical procedure to cut skin around so it's removed. Katatome doesn't mean to cut around. It means to cut off. It means to be destructive. Paul said, look, you've got people that are not about what produces a real devotion to Jesus. They're after something else that does not produce a real devotion to Jesus. It is a clear warning. Then Paul begins to paint the contrast... By saying in verse 3, we, we, Paul and those who are with him, we are the circumcision. He defines what that looks like in three steps. Walk with me through these three steps as Paul paints this contrast here between those who don't have a real relationship with Jesus who are painted as dogs and evil workers who are destructive and those who are the true circumcision. Number one, he gives us, or step one, he gives us four basic truths about anybody who has a real relationship with Jesus. He says we are the circumcision. We are the true circumcision. Take your Bibles and turn back to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, verses 25 through 29, and you will hear Paul here describing this true circumcision. Romans 2, verse 25. For, for circumcision, now we would say baptism. So Paul says circumcision or baptism indeed is a value If you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So you've been baptized. So what? If your life is not changed by the grace of God and the gospel, it becomes unbaptism. It is not a recommendation of you to God or anybody else. It is. It can become a condemnation before God. So if a man, verse 26, who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as as circumcision? In other words, there could be those who are in the church who've not yet been baptized, who are living for Jesus under the lordship of Jesus and their lives reflected. Don't make some ritual the test of your right relationship with God. Then he who physically is, is physically uncircumcised, verse 27, but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and a circumcision, but you break the law. Because no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. What Paul is saying is that God makes a real change, and it shows. And what we're looking for is that real change. Is it there? Is it visible? Is it in evidence? We observe the rituals because they are ways of providing people the opportunity to demonstrate their devotion to Jesus. But it's not the rituals that produce the relationship. It is the Spirit of God. Paul says, secondly, that we not only are the circumcision, we worship. We worship by the Spirit of God, public worship, private worship. The Spirit of God prompts us to desire to worship God privately. A person who is enjoying a real relationship with God is a person who loves God's Word daily and is devoted to God's Word daily. And then the Lord's Day comes and we are compelled because the Spirit of God is within us to join with other believers in public worship. You and I need to learn how to ask in our day some serious questions about how we use the Lord today as professing believers. Because as believers, our whole life, every day is devoted to the glory and honor and majesty of God. We are worshipers of God. Thirdly, We glory in Christ Jesus. The word for glory here is actually the word for boast. I know I've addressed this over the last several weeks. It's just because it's a part of the text. What if you and I who are believers in this body could learn to live in such a way in relationship to one another that we don't want, we really don't want any attention called to us cause apart from Jesus apart from Jesus we're nothing we want every boast every boast to be in Jesus Christ you know there're churches that are full of people that if they don't get recognized for something they do they get mad and they pout we don't boast in ourselves we boast in jesus christ we are dead jesus lives in us and through us and we want him alone exalted fourthly we have we put no confidence the end of verse three we put no confidence in our flesh or anything of the flesh We live in such a way that we boast in Jesus. We live in such a way that we care for others. We encourage others. We elevate others. I addressed this last week, but again, it's an issue in so many churches where we can get involved in some ministry, and that's all we care about. Let me tell you, when you know you've got a real relationship with Jesus, you're involved in a ministry, you love the ministry you're involved in, but you also seek to elevate and 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 promote other ministries in the church. And all the ministries are working together. We're not in competition with each other. We're wanting to elevate and exalt one another. We're wanting to support all the ministries of the church that glorify God and exalt the Lord Jesus Christ, right? You know what else we want? We want to elevate and exalt any and every church in this community that is faithful to the word of God, to the elevation of Jesus as Lord, to bring glory to God, seeking to reach people for Jesus and see them become followers of Jesus. We are not in competition with them. We ought to join hands with them and be cheerleaders for them. Mark Dever said, that a pastor really doesn't want revival. No, no human being can produce revival, right? You can't schedule a revival and have it. Only God brings revival. But every pastor, every leader in the church, every church should be praying for God to move in revival. But if while you're praying, what if we're praying for revival? And we should be. But God chooses for revival to break out at Rosemont. What are we going to say? Hey, God, they don't pray like we do. No, we should praise God. We want to see revival. We don't care where the fire starts, right? We have no confidence in our flesh. We lay our lives at the feet of Jesus. Step number two, we need to see We need to see what the focus of a relationship with God is like from the perspective of the flesh. Paul lays it out here for us. I'm using categories that I borrowed from Alec Mateer. He breaks down what Paul says into two major groupings, that which is natural, that which is personal, and and then he spells it out. So let's just walk through this very quickly. Paul says in verse 4, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also... If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Ecclesiastical. I was circumcised on the eighth day. His parents did it right. That was the legal requirement. That was what was taught by the rabbis. Circumcise your child, dedicate them to God, devote them to God on the eighth day. Some of you should praise God that from before you were born, you were a part of the church. Southern Baptists went through a season when we were so much into numbers that when women got pregnant, we enrolled their baby in the womb in a Sunday school class. We called it cradle roll. Now, you ought to thank God that Some of you may have been raised that way, that every Sunday of your life, you've been in church because your parents said, we're going to church. We're not discussing this, but that doesn't save you. That doesn't make you a child of God. You could be circumcised on the eighth day and baptized when you were an eight-year-old and that doesn't guarantee anything. Paul knew that. Paul had reason to be proud nationally. He belonged to the people of Israel. He was a true Israelite. But he knew that that had no meaning. You should love this country, and you should give praise to God for this country, but you better know that when you hold the flag and hold the cross, you better know that they're not standing on an equal platform. You should be able as a believer, and you should know as a believer that we lift high the cross of Jesus and we live under the banner of the cross and we don't worship at the feet of any nation anywhere, anytime because in the eyes of God, every one of them is a drop in the bucket. Paul had ancestral ties. He says not only was he... Circumcised on the eighth day, he belonged to the Israelites, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, the beloved youngest son of Jacob, the brother of Joseph, the one from whom the first king came, after whom Saul is named. He has a a wonderful genealogy. I, I have friends who are pastors, their father was a pastor, their grandfather was a pastor, I think that has to be wonderful, that when God calls you to preach, you can go home to daddy and say, daddy, I need help in this church, you know what it's like to be a preacher, but you can have all kinds of genealogical heritage, including being fourth or fifth in a row of men who served as pastors or women who were Sunday school teachers and leaders in WMU. And that should be something you appreciate, but it does nothing to secure for you a real relationship with God. Paul, Paul had this parental heritage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew among the Hebrews, he had been taught by the best of the rabbis. He had been to the best schools. You can have you can have children in any family, and you can have them gathered every night for Bible study. You can do family worship. You can bring them to church. You can teach them the Word of God. You can put them in an environment where you're trying to protect them from the world, and you can still have children who walk away from God. Saul did. He had an attitude of legalism. As to the law, he was a Pharisee. He was a purist. He wanted to make sure everybody observed the finer points of the teaching of the Torah. He was active. He was zealous for the Word of God. So he persecuted the church and he was morally blameless. As Morality goes, he says he was blameless. As to righteousness under the law, blameless. If you could be right with God by the standards of religion, Paul was perfect. If you could be right with God by just following the steps that any church says are the right steps to become a Christian, we would have lots and lots and lots and lots of Christians. But we don't. Because that doesn't constitute a real relationship with God. You see the first word in verse 7? Look at your Bibles. Look at the first word in verse 7. What is it in your Bible? Does everybody have but there? You know what that but represents? It represents a major transition. A relationship with God by the way of religious performance is not close to a real relationship with God. But here's the problem. It is perpetrated in so many places as a real relationship with God that we have many people in our churches that don't even know what a real relationship with God is. Step three. Paul begins to unfold for us a real relationship with God. If you have an outline, you should read along the foundation and focus of a real relationship with God. Here it is. It is a revolutionary change of life produced by God so that what was once everything becomes nothing and what was, and what once was little or nothing becomes everything because God changes us. Paul spells it out here in verse seven and eight. Whatever gain. Whatever gain. Then look at verse 8. Paul thinks about it and says, no, it's not just whatever's gain, whatever was profitable to me, whatever produced good things in my life. It's more than that. Verse 8, indeed, I count. You see the word there? I count what? Everything. That includes bad things. That includes good things. It includes everything thing. Then Paul thinks about it and says, well, that's not really enough. So he writes at the end of verse 8, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of what? All things. When Jesus really saves you, When Jesus is the Lord of your life through this powerful work that he does, your whole life becomes increasingly, fervently, and passionately all about Jesus. Paul says it this way here. Go back to verse 7. Whatever gain I had... I count it as loss for the sake of Christ. The sake of Christ. He bought me. He purchased me with his blood. He paid my sin debt. He has forgiven me. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. J.I. Packer says, once we become aware that the main business of our lives is to know God through Jesus Christ, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. You and I as believers have one business, to know Christ, to grow in Christ, to love Christ, to be loyal to Christ, to proclaim Christ. That's why Paul says at the end of verse 8, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish. I count them as what you find in a landfill before the bulldozer covers up the stuff. I count them as that place where the buzzards gather to find their food. I count everything as garbage in order that I may gain Christ. To know Jesus Christ, to love him, to grow in the knowledge of him, to pursue him with a passion, to desire him above all else. When God brings us to that place, that's when we begin to know the fullness of the joy of a real relationship with God. Do you know that? Sometimes, those of us who are believers, we get so frustrated in our walk with Jesus. Because we have failed to make Jesus the one thing. And all kinds of things crowd in. If you're not a child of God and you're here with us today and you sense that God's Spirit is moving in your heart, I pray that you would know that the only way you'll find what you're looking for, the only way is today, right here, right now give up everything for jesus is he worth it yes 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 father Speak today, we pray, into the hearts of those who know you and to the hearts of those who don't. Speak to my heart. I hear Paul. I hear Paul, and I have to say to Paul, Paul, I I want to be there. I want to be there with every fiber of my being. Help me. Help me. God, help me. And I pray there are other believers in this room right now that are praying the same thing. Lord, I want to be there with every fiber of my being. Help me. Help me. Help me. In Jesus' name, amen.